If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. For 911, where's your emergency? Oh. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. I'll wear a male car with his hands for a coffee table and just, just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub-faced, cherub-faced little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be... I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. In October 1993, 52-year-old hardware store owner Gerald Boggs was found murdered in his Steamboat Springs, Colorado home. Suspicion soon fell on his former wife, a con artist and serial bigamist who had been married 10 times. Her catchy name was Jill Lanita Billiot Enan Moore Coit Brody DeRosa Metzger DeRosa Steely Boggs Carol Bacchus. Troubled Mitchell Sims liked pizza but hated Domino's where he worked. An argument with his manager would send him on a cross-country revenge spree that would end in the deaths of three Domino's employees. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to loads of other episodes, including our brilliant early stuff. Ah, it's magnificent. And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. Right, without further ado, Tara, let's get murdery. No one is exactly sure when Jill Lanita Billiot was born, as she lied so frequently about her age. 
that it's believed the Louisiana native was most likely born on June the 11th of 1943 or 1944. Her father, Henry Billiot, was a wily tugboat captain. Oh, really? No. Well, he was a tugboat captain. I don't know. I'm assuming she learnt to be wily from somebody. Well, I'm, I'm sure he had a beard and smoked a pipe. Yeah, like you. Mm. And her mother, Juanita, was a wily stay-at-home mum to Jill and her younger brother, Mark. I mean, let's not be sexist with the wileys. Jill seemed to have a relatively trauma-free upbringing, though from the moment he was born, she resented her little brother for taking some of her parents' attention away from her. When she was 15, her parents allowed Jill to go live with her grandparents in North Manchester, Indiana. They probably breathed a sigh of relief and were able to take the bulletproof vest and helmet off her little brother Mark for the first time since his birth. Well, yeah, baby helmets. They grow out of them so fast. You have to buy them all the time. You do. Yeah, or get hand-me-downs. Well, you know, the fontanelle is quite soft. (laughs) Your fontanelle is real soft. (laughs) What? Although rather average academically, Jill's big brown eyes and voluptuous good looks made her quite popular, especially with the fellas. She later claimed that she was a professional model, but there's no real evidence of it, and posing for a photo with your cousin near a poorly made snowman at Christmas doesn't make you a professional model. Strange, my portfolio is full of photos like that. And yet Vogue still said no. In July 1961, 17-year-old Jill dropped out of high school and eloped with her 18-year-old boyfriend, Larry Einan. Good move, kids. Who needs an education when you can rely on the indestructible foundations of teen love? Well, they are indestructible, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, everyone who was together as a teenager is still together. That's right. Mm-hmm. By March 1962, the couple had broken up and Larry had moved back home with his mother. A few weeks before what would have been the couple's first anniversary, a divorce was granted to Larry on the grounds of cruel and inhumane treatment. She was cruel and inhumane to him. Oh, what is... What, he didn't what, like it. What do you suppose she did to well, deserve that? Well, he's 18. I'm thinking maybe she, um, she didn't pick up all his wet towels after him and possibly wasn't super into anal. I don't know. Yeah, that sounds about right. Newly single Jill quit her tedious, low-paying job in a factory and returned home to Louisiana where she obtained her high school diploma. Well, her little brother Mark would have had to see if his baby helmet still fit. (laughs) He would if he wanted to stay safe. Then Jill enrolled at Northwestern State University. Never letting a pesky little thing like education stand in the way of true love, Jill met and married fellow student Stephen Moore... On March 28, 1965, she gave birth to a baby boy they named Stephen Seth Moore II. The two separated mere months afterwards, as it seems that this one time a Band-Aid baby didn't miraculously save a crumbling marriage. They never do. No, I I feel like it's usually foolproof, but this one time didn't Mm, work. Didn't work. Husband number three would be a wealthy gas pipeline worker named William Clark Coit Jr., who went by the name of Clark. Did his mates call him Coity? No, no, they called him Clark. Oh. Now, do you think, Barney, that she was getting married all the time for the wedding presents? Like, maybe she collected toasters and pointless glass decantery things. I do like vases. Do you? Hmm. Do you Do you own a vase? I've got a whole room full of them. Clark had met Jill in a bar in the French Quarter on a particularly fortuitous Saturday night. 35-year-old Clark was never anywhere long enough to call home, but he had been thinking lately of giving up the job that forced him to travel so much and settling down with a wife and kids. One of her ex-husbands described Jill as the greatest person he'd ever met at first. And this is how Clark felt too. 
Jill must have been brilliant at reading men and understanding how to act to make them lose their minds over her. After one evening together, Clark was completely smitten. Ah, cunstruck. Yep. Quitty cunstruck. Coity Cunstruck. Yeah, that's, then that's, that's what she called him after they got married. That's the name of my fourth album. <laughs> of course it is. On August 27th, 1965, Jill filed for divorce from her second husband, Stephen, and moved into Clark's fancy French Quarter apartment. Although still secretly married to Stephen, Jill also married Clark on January 29th, 1966. Nine months after tying the knot, Jill gave birth to a second son she named William Andrew Coit, they also had another son that they named William Coit III. So that's three guys named William Coit under the same roof. It's starting to sound like an Abbott and Costello routine. Clark adopted Jill's oldest son as well, whose name was changed from Stephen Seth Moore to Jonathan Seth Coit, because I guess your new husband would feel more comfortable if your son from a current slash previous marriage wasn't named after your ex. I'm just surprised they passed up the opportunity to call him William Coit too. Electric Coitaloo. <laughs> that's the one. I love that movie. It's a very good film. Uh, the more coits, the merrier. That's yes. The, that's the saying. Just coit me up. Uh, Jonathan actually went by the name Seth anyway. So just FYI. Yeah, but everyone called him Coity. Coity. Everyone called everyone in the house Coity. Now, due to Clark's job, the Coit family moved to Orange, Texas. Clark still frequently travelled for work, which gave Jill the opportunity to spread her wings and other things. Their marriage hit the rocks hard in 1972. Jill began bragging to her husband about her voracious sex life, which didn't happen to include him, and rubbed her affairs in his face. Really? Yeah. Clark, Clark, husband of mine, gather all the coits around and let me tell you about the awesome fuck I had last night. (laughs) That's pretty much how it went. Wow. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, understandably, this was a crushing blow to Clark and, and all the William Coits. And he accused Jill of only marrying him for his money. It took him long enough, but he eventually worked it out. Not coitus. <laughs> I mean, they must it must have happened a few times. <laughs> well, how do you create a coit? By coitus. Yeah, that's, that's by name and by nature. Clark filed for divorce on March 8th, 1972. Afterwards, he withdrew a large sum of money from his bank accounts, telling friends that it was a bit of money Jill can't get her hands on. Ah, uh, coitus rainy day fund. That was it, but yeah. it proved to be untrue. William Clark Coit was killed in his home on March 29, 1972, shot twice in the back by an apparent intruder. When his dead body was discovered, the money was nowhere to be found. Oh, suspicious. Very. Funnily enough, Jill was the one who discovered her husband's body after he didn't show up for work that morning. Homicide detectives were sure that Jill was responsible for Clark's murder, but they struggled trying to get enough evidence to present it to a grand jury. Feeling the heat, Jill skipped town. They later found her in New Orleans with a dogged attorney named Louis A. DeRosa on retainer to fight any possible extradition. In order to avoid being questioned by the police, Jill had herself committed to a mental institution with claims of acute hysteria and emotional distress. Ah, coital madness. That's it. It's quite common. Yes. Luckily, she's got a schnauzer to look after her. Well, yes. The case of Clark Coit's murder went cold, and his widow inherited his estate. In August 1973, Jill decided to share her special brand of fuckery with the residents of California. Here she met and befriended a wealthy man in his 90s named Bruce Johansson. Somehow she managed to convince the lonely old man to legally adopt her. Oh, don't do it, Brucey. 
Perhaps it was all the sitting on his lap, calling him daddy and telling him she'd do anything for a pony that sealed the deal. Her crafty attorney, Louis A. DeRosa, was on hand to draw up the paperwork. Less than a year later, Bruce was dead and Jill received a delicious chunk of his estate. Investigators found this suspicious and suspected his will had been tampered with to include Jill, but they couldn't prove it. Bruce's cause of death was attributed to old age and not foul play, although investigators admitted they considered the adoption dubious at best. i got to give Jill credit for one thing, though. She did have a decent work ethic. She was always working on someone. While laying her charm onslaught on her new daddy, Bruce Johansson, Jill had met and married US Marine Corps Major Donald Charles Brody. Yeah, cordial control to Major Brody. <laughs> Unlike her other husbands, Major Brody didn't just hand over the keys to his bank accounts to her, which really pissed Jill off. No, he made her drop and give him 20. Drop and give me 20! Was he not taking this marriage seriously? Unwilling to live on a limited budget, Jill left Major Brody, but her sticky fingers were still trying to wriggle their way into his heavily guarded pockets. She came up with what she thought would be a foolproof plan. A foolproof plan that meant she needed to borrow someone's baby. What? Uh-huh. She had to borrow a baby. Like, how would you even go about trying to do that? Hi, my name's Jill. Do you mind if I have a lend of your baby? I'll bring him right back when I'm finished. Hey, baby, can I borrow your baby? How much for three hours with your baby? None of that sounds good, does it? And none of it sounds mm. good, Tara. And what kind of person lends someone like Jill their newborn baby? Is this like a Craigslist thing? Yeah, eBay. eBaby. eBaby. Oh, she just looked it up on eBay. She bought it on eBaby. She bought it on eBaby. Ah, makes sense. Well done, sir. Well done. Well, no one buys babies anymore. You just lease them. Yeah, yeah. You get them on contract. You just borrow them on iTunes, I believe. Yeah, you can download one. (laughs) Yeah, just for a few hours. Just for a few hours. You can stream them now. Yeah, live stream a baby. Yeah. Several months after they separated, Jill met up with Major Brody and claimed to have given birth to his son, who she said she'd named Thaddeus John Brody. But the Major called bullshit on her story, even when she presented him with an infant. So you know what? She should have given the borrowed baby plastic surgery to look like the Major before showing it to him. Well, she shouldn't have got a Chinese baby to start with, and maybe she could have dressed it in a full-dress military uniform. Look, you've got to think about these things, lady. Jill's trusty attorney, Louis A. DeRosa, who helped her flee Texas following Clark's death and handle Jill's adoption by Bruce Johansson and the claim to his estate, was next in line for her affections. Mm, woof. Watch out, doggy. Who's a good boy? Jill and Louis married on October 11, 1976, in Wilkinson County, Mississippi. Theirs was a volatile union, and they were constantly breaking up and getting back together again. During one of their many separations, Jill met and married her sixth husband, Indiana auctioneer Eldon Dwayne Metzger, on March 27, 1978, even though she was still married to Lewis. So we actually have a clip of Eldon. Uh, let's play that now. I love him. I love him too. <laughs> I have no idea what he said, but I love him. 
Getting married once, getting married twice. Do I hear three times? Three times, four times. Who's got four times? Gone five times, gone five times, gone five times, five times, six, 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 six times married, six times butter bing bumble. That's how it goes, right? That's right. Jill went to Haiti to get a quickie divorce from her attorney on November 4th, 1978. But this divorce was not recognised by the USA, so Jill was a bigamist yet again. Ah, Haitian divorced proceedings. Only legal in Haiti. Yeah, weird, right? I know. (sighs) Not cool, guys. Now, after just a few years together, Jill and the auctioneer split up. Going once, going twice. Ah, just gone. Never single for more than three seconds in her life, Jill and her attorney, wiener dog Louis DeRosa, had reconciled during this time. They even got remarried, although it was unnecessary as they'd never technically been divorced. So this was like her seventh wedding. Do you think she was getting over it by now? Like, had she started just re-wearing some of her old wedding dresses because she couldn't be fucked shopping for more? I can just hear her sigh and say, Oh, always a bride, never a bridesmaid. <laughs> I do, for now. It's unlikely that she got sick of it, though, as these narcissistic sociopaths can never get too much attention or too many toasters. Jill is said to have obtained a legal divorce from auctioneer Eldon. However, there are no records to confirm it. After buying yet another wedding dress, Jill dumped her attorney again but failed to divorce him. Never letting that stop her before. On January 6, 1983, Jill married Carl V. Steely. I like to think that the V stands for Berry. Ah, very Steely. Mm, very Steely. Who was a teacher at Culver Academy in Indiana. Was he? Yes, very. No, was he very Steely? <laughs> yes, very. Well, he did, did go into the clutches of Jilly, though. Yeah, I reckon you can be gullible and steely at the same time. Mm, True. This marriage would last for nine years, which is kind of a record for Jill. She and her attorney wiener dog, Louis de Sousa, obtained their first legal divorce in 1985. Soon before the demise of their marriage, Carl and Jill took a vacation in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. They loved the area and decided it was where they wanted to retire. Jill was keen to buy the picturesque Oak Street bed and breakfast and Carl agreed to it. Jill planned to stay there after they bought it and Carl was to come back and join her over the summer. Despite his financial stake in the property, instead of listing Carl on the deed to the bed and breakfast, Jill only put herself and her oldest son Seth on it. Carl was kept in the dark about this and came to Steamboat Springs as planned to work on the renovations. At this point, Jill was just using Carl for his handyman skills, as she'd already begun her charm offensive on future husband number eight. Carl would later say that he felt lucky to still be alive, as he suspected his wife had tried to kill him on at least two occasions, once by poisoning his coffee, and the other time by having a man try to run him over while he was riding his push bike. Ah, you've got to watch out when you're pedalling your velocipede down the road. And you're you're married married to Jill. And you're married married to Jill, that's right. Jill's new target, Gerald Boggs, was born in Steamboat Springs in 1941 and spent his whole life there, aside from the years he studied at the University of Colorado and served in the Vietnam War, for which he was awarded a Bronze Star. For awesomeness? For awesomeness! All right, the Ballad of Steamboat Boggsy. Oh! I want to hear it. Upon returning to Steamboat, he took over his family's store, Boggs Hardware. Caring, patient and friendly, Jerry was considered one of the most eligible and wealthy bachelors in the area. He was also an avid scuba diver, wildlife photographer and pilot. 
His friend Gilliand said, He was a good old boy, and yet he could sit down and have a conversation with just about anyone and discuss anything very intelligently. There aren't that many people that could do that. Well, there's none in this room. No, that's for fucking sure. He was a real person. There was no pretense about Jerry Boggs. What you saw was what you get, and that's kind of a unique trait you don't find much anymore. Boggs, he sounds like a top bloke. He does, indeed. He's going to get messed up with the wrong person. In her efforts to win over Jerry, Jill lied about the number of times she'd been married and knocked several years off her age. She also told Jerry that she was pregnant with his baby. This seemed to do the trick, and Jerry married Jill on April 4th, 1991. He had no idea that she was still married and thought that she was 40 years old. Poor Jerry had no way of knowing Jill had gotten a hysterectomy a few years earlier. The couple shopped for baby clothes and prepared a nursery together while thinking of names to call their imaginary future daughter. Perhaps Baby William Coit the Fourth? Yeah. Or a fifth of Coity? A fifth of Coity. That's a catchy name. As her due date approached, Jill insisted that she wanted to go home to Louisiana to give birth. A few weeks later, she came back and told Jerry a tear-jerking tale. She said she'd given birth to their daughter, they named Lara, but that the baby had died shortly after her birth. I guess Jill was unable to secure a long-term loan of a newborn baby on eBaby. Jerry's spidey senses were tingling pretty hard by now, so he hired a private investigator to look into his wife's background. Jerry learned that Jill had several aliases and a track record of involvement in financial and insurance scams. He also discovered she was a 48-year-old woman who'd had her tubes tied and was actually married to someone else. He immediately sought an annulment. Jerry also sued Jill for a $100,000 loan that she was refusing to repay him. In response, she left him some threatening voice messages that would surely not help her case. Figuring now was as good a time as any, Jill filed for divorce. Jill filed for divorce from husband number eight, Carl, and it was finalised in December 1991. By this point, Jill had already moved on to telephone line repairman Michael Backus. He was a lineman for the county, and he drove the main roads, searching in the sun for another overload. He also rode a sweet motorbike, which Jill thought made him a cool bad boy. Mm, brum, brum. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sit on it, Jill. After word about her lies and scams with Jerry got out, Steamboat Springs became a less welcoming place for Jill, so she skipped town. On February 7th, 1992, Jill married retired U.S. Navy Petty Officer Roy Carroll and the couple returned to Carroll's place in Houston, Texas. Within 10 months, Jill and Carol had split up and it's believed she married the Steamboat Springs lineman, Michael Backus. Although there's no evidence to prove it, um, Jill did, however, use Backus's last name in several documents that were later recovered. So many husbands, I'm starting to lose track. Yeah, like, I don't know how she ever got anything done in between jumping headfirst into new relationships and constantly planning weddings. Oof. Yeah, look, she must have been exhausted by it all too, as Jill actually lay low for a couple of years. <laughs> Oh, really? She's like, yeah. I can't even keep track, and I'm the one who's marrying nah. them all. She's probably got a whiteboard. Yeah, she'd have to have an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. On October 21st, 1993, less than a week before the lawsuit Jerry Boggs had filed against Jill was scheduled to go to trial, two odd-looking strangers turned up in his quiet neighbourhood in Steamboat Springs. One wore a bulky jacket, fake black moustache and a baseball cap like a Mario Brothers costume and was driving a red sports car. 
Her build made it clear that she was a woman, witnesses later said. The other was a tall, thin man wearing blue jeans and a tan jacket. The couple's stupid outfits made them stand out more than blend in as they looked like cheap Halloween costumes. Come on. Jerry Boggs was known as a creature of habit. He had a strident schedule that he stuck to every single day. At 10am, he opened the hardware store. He'd work for a bit, then walk two doors down to a diner where he had the exact same breakfast every morning. Eggs, toast and hash browns. Ah, the Boggsy special. Yep. You can set, set your watch by Steamboat Boggsy. You can. Jerry didn't eat lunch, but every night he would visit a local restaurant where he ordered his favourite item from their menu. Never anything but that thing. So like every restaurant in town that he went to, he would have his one thing that he, he bought. So a Boggsy special was different in different restaurants. Yeah, yeah. yeah it would right. just be like, Boggsy special, please. Yeah. Ah, uh, the usual Boggsy? Damn straight. <laughs> When Jerry didn't open the hardware store on the morning of October 22nd, 1993, everybody knew something was wrong. Doug Boggs rushed to his little brother's home where he discovered a horrific scene. Jerry lay dead, having been shot three times, beaten with a shovel and tortured with a stun gun. When Doug was actually calling the 911 operator after finding his brother's dead body, he said to them, Oh God, that bitch has killed him. I know she's killed him. I know she did. And when asked who, he said his ex-wife, she carried a gun. Well, it's probably the only enemy he'd ever had in his life. Yeah, actually, everyone loved Boggsy. The whole town mourned for Jerry. There was nothing of value stolen from the property either, which ruled out robbery as a motive. After finding out that Jerry and Jill were merely days away from a hearing in their civil case and being unable to find the phone answering machine tape that had the threats Jill had made toward Jerry on it after searching the property, Jill and her latest man bag became suspects. Jill and Backer said that they'd been camping in Kelly Flats at the time that Jerry was murdered. There was no evidence that this was true and it's unlikely anyway as Jill had recently had a hip replacement. See, most people don't develop a sudden urge to go camping shortly after that. You wouldn't think so. No, you would not. Jill told detectives that Jerry was secretly a homosexual and they should investigate his gay lovers as possible suspects. Bacchus even went so far as to leave a voice message on Jerry's answering machine, talking about how he and Jerry were a couple and how they should tell investigators and be more open about their relationship. Uh, diabolical. He and Jill hoped the police would listen to the message and that it would make them believe that the whole, like, murdered by his gay lover pantomime bullshit they set up. Detectives were dubious about the couple's alibi and they thought her claims of Jerry being murdered by a gay lover smelt like the bullshit that they were. When they searched Jill's car, they found a stun gun. Before they could arrest Jill, she'd fled the country to Mexico and signed over power of attorney to her son, Seth. But she soon ran out of money in Mexico, mustn't have found anyone husband-worthy, and returned to Colorado. Police had been diligently working Jerry's homicide case, and they had witnesses tell them that Jill had approached a couple of people asking them to kill Jerry because he was molesting her daughter from a former marriage. So she doesn't have a daughter. It was an imaginary daughter who was being imaginarily molested. Yeah, that's cold. So cold. Bacchus had also offered a co-worker 7500 to murder Jerry, telling him that he made Jill have sex with other men while he watched. Like, there's no low these two won't sink to. Looks like they really fucking suit each other. 
The warrant also said that Jill had travelled with Bacchus to Iowa when he was assigned to repair telephone lines damaged by floods. Once there, she claimed to be a psychologist and conducted therapy sessions with patients. Bet they came out worse off than they went in. The warrant quotes an Iowa woman as saying Jill tried to convince her to kill Jerry by telling her he was a sadistic rapist. So she used her position as a fake counsellor to fake counsel people to try and kill her ex. Wow, that's some layers there. Yeah, it really is. It's a lasagna of wrongness. So much wrongness. The biggest break in the case came from Jill's oldest son, Seth. He strongly believed that his mother had killed his adopted father, Clark Coit, nearly 20 years ago. He also told investigators that his mother had told him she planned to kill Jerry and had called him the night of October 21st and said, Hey, baby, it's over and it's messy. So as if she wasn't already bad enough, we now find out that Jill talks like sexy Barney. How dare she? What, what, was, what was the line? Hey, baby, it's over. It's messy. And it's messy. Yeah, that was it. Mm. No. 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 Hell no. On December 20... Kenyan sex. On December 23rd, 1993, Jill and Bacchus were arrested and held on a $5 million bond. Though the evidence was circumstantial and each piece of evidence on its own couldn't convict the couple, when they were put together, they painted a clear enough picture. Detective Del Vale said, I call it the pebbles of a case that kind of weigh in favour of a guilty verdict. We gather all these little pebbles and we put them on the scales of justice and hopefully they tip in favour of a guilty verdict. Oh, I like that quote. The most damning testimony came from Seth Coit, who agreed to take the stand against his mother in exchange for immunity. He said that Jill had tried to persuade him to kill Jerry and help dispose of his body. On March 17, 1995, after an extensive trial, Jill Coit and her partner Michael Bacchus were convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder in the shooting death of Gerald Boggs and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Doug Boggs, Jerry's older brother, said after the verdict, she picked the wrong town, she picked the wrong man, and she picked the wrong family. She did. Yeah, don't mess with Boggsy. Nah, don't mess with any of the Boggsies. Being locked up in the pokey didn't keep Jill from trying to line up more husbands. Really? Yeah. How so? In May 1998, she got a friend to place a personals ad online for her, which was taken down when the Colorado Department of Corrections got wind of it. And in December of the same year, Jill tried again by placing an online personals ad that read, Want US citizenship? Marry an inmate. On the Cyber Inmates website, uh, in response, the U.S. Department of Naturalization and Immigration shut down the website. Way yeah. to ruin a good thing, Jill. Um, so by 2006, all of Jill's opportunities for appeal had been exhausted. I still reckon she'll find a way to get married in jail, though. They didn't get her for that first murder, though. No, they couldn't get her for um, for Clark. For Clark Coit. For Coity. And the, all, the, all the other Coities. I'm sure the Coities are pretty happy that he she went down for Boggsy. Yeah, yeah, like all of her sons called William Coit and also the one called Seth, like they all think she's pretty shit mm. and that she belongs in jail. And yeah. they believe that she killed William Clark Coit as well. Yeah, I believe that too. Yeah, nah, she's um, mm. she's like, she's going to like marry you and then bite your head off and eat your brains. And call me Coit. And call you Steamboat Coity. <laughs> Steamboat Coity? No, that's not who it was. Steamboat Bogsy. That's who it was. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. Well, Barney Two Cakes, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. In November 1985, 25-year-old Mitchell Carlton Sims was managing a Domino's pizza parlor in West Columbia, South Carolina. Mitchell had experienced a challenging life up to this point and liked to call himself a human ashtray, amusing his friends by stubbing out cigarettes on his bare chest. That's kind of amusing. More a cry for help, you would think. But self-mutilation was only one of his pastimes, Tara. Mitchell had also cultivated a deep interest in the occult and murder, which included a fascination with the movie The Executioner's Song. Oh, okay. So that's based on the Norman Mailer book. And it stars Tommy Lee Jones and Rosanna Arquette. Yeah, that was about Gary Gilmore, who is himself a multiple murderer. Mm -hmm. Mitchell also wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. Yeah, I get the feeling like his version of glory will be different to what we think would be glorious. He would later be described as extremely intelligent and scored in the 99th percentile in smarty pants tests. I think that's a technical term for them. Yeah, that's definitely technical. Things were not going well at the pizza parlor. Mitchell had argued with his stingy boss before quitting in a fit of anger because his boss had stiffed him out of a bonus he'd earned. And he didn't like putting pineapple on pizzas. Well, that's right. He stormed off, but then he had to come back because he forgot his jacket. And he had to knock all the cans of pineapple off the bench. That's right. Mitchell started thinking revenge thoughts and told his then-girlfriend, 20-year-old Ruby Paget, that he wanted to use explosives to explode his boss. He also brought himself a gun. Mitchell and Ruby talked and drank and talked and drank some more, developing a bizarre, abiding hatred for the nationwide chain of Domino's Pizza restaurants. Well, they wouldn't be the first. A glutton for punishment, two weeks later, Mitchell was hired as a delivery driver by another Domino's in Hanahan, South Carolina. Does he know he's allowed to work in other places that aren't Domino's? Mm, Maybe he didn't. He would not receive the coveted title of Employee of the Month. Oh, did Carl get it again? Yeah, I know. It's nepotism. He's related. I know. It's his, like, nephew or something. Just two weeks after Mitchell was hired, at 2am on December 4, the assistant manager of the store, Gary Melky, appeared in the lobby of the police department about three blocks away. Dressed in his uniform with a telephone cord dangling from one of his wrists and bleeding profusely from gunshot wounds to his head and neck. Paramedics were called and Melky was taken away in an ambulance. En route to the hospital, the ambulance detoured to the Domino's store where another shooting had been reported. There, the police found Chris Zerr, a delivery driver, lying on the floor covered with blood. 
his hands tied behind his back with a telephone cord. He died shortly afterwards from a gunshot wound to his head. $1,164 had been taken from the cash register. That's a lot of pizzas. At the hospital, authorities asked Melky who had shot him, and he responded, Mitchell, Mitch, Mitchell. He said that Mitchell had tied him up and then shot Zer. He was even able to give them a description of Mitchell and let them know he worked for Domino's before going in for surgery. Melky had suffered four gunshot wounds to the head and the neck. A bullet casing was removed from his tongue, and a fifth bullet, which had exited from his head, was recovered from a wall at the parlour. Unfortunately, he died soon after surgery. By this time, Mitchell and Ruby had hit the road and were in the wind, on their way to California to line up their next crime. Domino's offered a $100,000 reward for Mitchell's arrest, or a lifetime supply of pizza. Ah, uh, the people wanted the money. Yeah. On December 8, 1985, the couple ended up in Glendale. Here they found another Domino's and asked Kerry Spiroff, the assistant manager, for directions to a chemist shop or a drugstore. Mm-hmm. On the afternoon of the next day, Mitchell and Ruby went to a Sears store in Glendale and bought a package of socks, underwear, a clothesline and a knife. The sales clerk overheard the woman tell the man to relax because they will be leaving the store shortly. On the evening of December 9th, Corey Spiroff was working at the Domino's in Glendale with delivery drivers Edward Sycam and John Harrington. All were wearing their very cool uniforms of short sleeve shirts with a Domino's badge and name tag. At 11.03pm, Brian Scarlett, an off-duty Domino's employee who was visiting his mate Spiroff, took a phone order from a man with a southern accent. The caller, Mitchell, asked for a pizza to be delivered to room 205 of the Riga Lodge Motel. The motel was a three-minute drive from the parlour. Oh, well, that's lazy. I did want to take his pyjamas off. I know how he feels sometimes. Well, yeah, I guess. 21-year-old Harrington left the parlour at 11.26pm in his Toyota truck to make the delivery. At 11.45pm, Mitchell and Ruby walked to the Domino's. Oh, see, they could walk there. Yeah. Spiroff recognised a couple from the day before. This time, Mitchell pointed a gun at Sycam and ordered the two men into the back office. When Spiroff warned Mitchell that the delivery driver was due back at any moment, Mitchell took off his sweater to reveal a Domino's shirt with John Harrigan's name tag and chuckled, Nah, I don't think so. Oh, diabolical. Mitchell found a bank deposit bag which he gave to Ruby, who then emptied the parlour's cash register into it. Mitchell told her to watch for fingerprints and she began wiping the tables and cash drawers at his direction. He ordered Spiroff and Sycam to stand in the corner of the office and aimed his gun directly at them. At this point, Richard Wagner, an off-duty Domino's employee, arrived at the parlour with his wife. Mitchell told Spiroff to go to the front counter, threatening to shoot Sycam unless Spiroff cooperated. Instead of acknowledging Wagner as a friend, Spiroff blanked him and simply asked him for his order. Smart. Yeah, yeah, he wants him to know something's up. Mm. Meanwhile, Mitchell took an order over the phone, identifying himself as Mitch to the customer. While Spiroff prepared the pizzas, Mitchell told the Wagners to wait in the car for their pizza to be brought to them. Yeah, because that's normal. After Mitchell gave the Wagners their pizza, they drove off and, suspecting a burglary, called the cops. Meanwhile, Mitchell decided to take Spiroff and Seacam one at a time into the walk-in cool room. The cool room was 8 feet by 12 feet with a three-tier rack. The temperature was kept at a brisk 32 degrees or 0 degrees Celsius. I mean, that's nipple-hardening weather. Oh, yes. That's cold. 
Mitchell tied Spiroff's hands together behind his back and with one end of the rope and looped the other end over the rack and lifted Spiroff's arms painfully high by pulling down on the rope. This forced Spiroff to stand on his tiptoes to ease the tension in the rope and alleviate the pain. When Spiroff complained, Mitchell replied, Shut up! At least you live! Next, Mitchell wrapped the end of the rope around Spiroff's neck and tied it so tightly with a knot in the back of the neck that Spiroff would strangle if he stopped standing on his tiptoes. Mitchell asked him when the cool room would be open the following day. Spiroff said at 11am. Mitchell replied by then he and Ruby would be in San Francisco. Looks as if he told him where he's really going. When Spiroff asked Mitchell about Harrigan... Mitchell said that Harrigan had been tied up at the motel and would be found after Spiroff was found. Mitchell then brought Seacam into the cool room and bound him in the same manner as Spiroff. When Seacam said he was choking, Mitchell responded, You are alive. Oh, he's good at bringing perspective, huh? Mitchell closed the cool room and left with Ruby at 12.15am. While standing on the toes of one foot, Spiroff tried to knock over cartons so they could stand on them and relieve some of the pressure around his neck but the rope tightened as he moved. Eventually, he succeeded in knocking a box over. Nevertheless, at some point, Spiroff blacked out. Responding to Wagner's call, you know that employee that rang the cops, Mm -hmm. Glendale police officers arrived at 12.30am. They found Spiroff and Seacam in the cool room. One of them told the officers that their attacker was wearing Harrigan's Domino's shirt and that Harrigan had not returned from delivering a pizza to the Riga Lodge. The officers went to the Riga Lodge, got the key and registration card to room 205, which was registered to Mitchell, and found Domino's delivery driver Harrigan's dead body in the bathtub. The bathtub was full of water, and Don Harrigan's body was submerged. Cold water was running at full blast onto the back of his mm. neck. His head was immediately under the spout about one inch below the waterline. The drain plug was broken, but the tub was filled with water up to the overflow valve. Harrigan's wrists and ankles were bound, and his feet and hands were hogtied together behind his back. His head was covered with a pillowcase, which was secured with a rope around his neck. A washcloth had been placed inside his mouth, held in place by a sock tied around his head. Dr. Joseph Kogan, the state's forensic pathologist, performed an autopsy on Harrigan and determined that the cause of death was ligature strangulation of his neck. Harrigan had hemorrhages on his inner eyelids, indicating that he was alive when the neck ligature was applied because it obstructed blood to his head. Kogan stated that Harrigan lived for no more than 10 minutes after the rope was wrapped around his neck and that the ligature in itself was enough to kill Harrigan. So why put him in the bath? I guess he wanted to make sure. Yeah. No money, wallet or car keys belonging to Harrigan were found in the room. The phone lines had been cut, Tara. Although the room had been wiped clean with a wet towel, Mitchell's fingerprints were found inside a toilet paper roll and in a telephone book on the page listing pizza. Oh, that's incriminating. The knots used to tie up the ligatures on Harrigan's neck were identical to those used to tie off Spiroff and Seacam. The rope used to bind Harrigan, Spiroff and Seacam was similar to the clothesline sold to Mitchell and Ruby at the Glendale Sears the day before. Evidence, Tara. Physical evidence. I believe that's what they call it. Mitchell and Ruby were apprehended in a Las Vegas motel on December 25th I believe that's Christmas. Yeah, Merry fucking Christmas. By the Las Vegas police who were acting on an anonymous tip. 
that Tipster had recognised the pair's photographs from news reports. Detectives arrested Mitchell and Ruby shortly before 2am at the Stevens Motel on Las Vegas's northern fringes. When police knocked on the couple's door, Mitchell made no attempt to hide his identity, even though he had checked into the motel on December 11th under the name of Jeff Richardson, or William Coit III. Yeah, probably. Mitchell calmly announced to police, I'm Mitchell Carton Sims. (laughs) Yeah, something to be proud of, buddy. He then turned around and placed his hands behind his back without being instructed to do so, so the officers could handcuff him. I guess he knows the drill. Yeah, the jig's up. No more jigging. Yeah, that's not exactly going out in a blaze of glory, is it? No, it isn't, isn't it? Going out in a lame of lameness, which, uh, by the way, it's a better way to do it because you don't want to take more people's lives. Well, Tara, a fully loaded twenty-five caliber pistol was found under the mattress. Police also recovered a Los Angeles Times article entitled Delivery Man Slain While Making Pizza Run and a yellow page torn from a Las Vegas telephone book listing Domino's Pizza restaurants. Evidence, Tara. Is that what they call it? Yeah. John Harrington's pickup truck with a Domino shirt bearing Harrigan's name tag inside was also found in Las Vegas about 20 miles from the motel. Mitchell was taken to the Clark County Jail. Officer Jonathan Perkins of the Glendale Police Department met with him in an interview room. After informing Mitchell of his Miranda rights, Detective Perkins gathered his papers and stood up to leave. That was when Mitchell asked what was going to happen to him and said that he would like to go to South Carolina rather than California. Oh, I'm sorry, but we're not taking requests. Yeah, that's right. This isn't a, this isn't a bus. This isn't a cab. It's yeah, not a, <laughs> yeah, it's your, not Uber, a taxi. your Uber hasn't shown up. Yeah. <laughs> Mitchell also told Perkins, I had to kill that boy, and he would have identified me. Yeah, but they knew where you were anyway, because, like, you weren't subtle about any single Well, They would have known anyhow, even if he was alive. Well, he did check into that hotel in his own name. And leave a dead boy in the bathtub. You know, like, come on. Logic. That's not it. I'll know it when I see it, and that's not it. The next day, Detective Perkins tape-recorded an interview with Mitchell in which Mitchell said, I just got drunk. I didn't know what the fuck I was. I knew I was doing it, but I shouldn't have done it. Understatement of the century. Wisely, Mitchell decided not to testify at his trial in California. Yeah, that's probably for the best. Well, for him anyway. The jury found Mitchell guilty of one count of first-degree murder, two counts of attempted murder, and three counts of robbery. At the penalty phase, the prosecution introduced evidence that Mitchell had robbed and shot to death two Domino's Pizza employees in Hanahan, South Carolina, less than a week before the Glendale crimes. But in spite of the ghastly nature of the crime, a death sentence was not a foregone conclusion. Why not? Well, I'll tell you, Tara. (laughs) I bet you will. The defence presented as mitigating evidence a number of witnesses who testified about Mitchell's brutal family background of physical, sexual and emotional abuse. Now, this is going to get a bit dark, Tara. Oh, it's going to get dark? Yeah, it's going to get darker. His mother, Mildred, testified that Mitchell only saw his natural father, from whom she was divorced, on two or three occasions during his childhood. She had three children with her first husband and two with her second husband, Arnold Cranford, who she had married in 1961. Cranford had a drinking problem and became violent and sexually abusive when drunk. 
She told the court Cranford raped Mitchell when he was seven years old and forced Mitchell to engage in oral sex with him over the years. When Mitchell was 16, Cranford made him have sexual intercourse with his mother. They both cried during the incident. Uh... On another occasion, Cranford forced Mitchell to have intercourse with his older sister, Merlin. Cranford repeatedly told Mitchell that Mitchell was no good and a bad person. Mitchell began drinking heavily at 14 and attempted suicide by drowning when he was a teenager. Mitchell's sister, Merlin, testified to repeated incidents of physical and sexual abuse that she and her brother suffered at the hands of Cranford. She said that every night was a living nightmare. Cranford would drag her out of bed, force her to strip, and then beat her, tie her to a bed, and fondle her and have sexual intercourse with her. Cranford brought men home and forced her to have sex with them. Merlin had also attempted suicide several times. Cranford threatened to kill the children if they told anybody about what he did. This is monstrous. When Mitchell was 16, Cranford forced Mitchell's younger stepsister, Margaret, to undress and lie beside him in bed. He began to fondle her and told her he was going to have sex with her, but Mitchell called the cops. Cranford was arrested and convicted. Yeah, I hope for a damn long time. Yeah, I hope he's still in jail. Ugh. Mitchell's brother Eddie also testified that he had seen Cranford force Mitchell to have sex with him on many occasions. Mitchell's wife, yes, he has a wife, Okay. Teresa had known Mitchell since she was nine. They were married when Mitchell was 20 and she was 16. He probably just wanted to get out of that house. Well, she probably wanted to get away from something too. 16 is pretty young. He would have been long gone by 20. Yeah, I guess you're right. They had three children. She testified about various jobs that Mitchell had held. All of the dominoes. All of the pizza jobs that he held. And said that he'd become withdrawn and depressed whenever he was promoted at work. Hmm. That he engaged in extensive substance abuse and that he suffered a sense of worthlessness and guilt from the incestuous act he committed with his mother. Mm. While he was working at Domino's, Mitchell had had an affair with a co-worker but came back to Teresa. He left Teresa again when he met Ruby. Mitchell told Teresa he was no good for her and did not want to pull her and the boys down with him. That's his children. At her urging, he saw a counsellor and cried as he recounted the abuse he had suffered. Mitchell's mother, sister and stepbrother, as well as his wife, testified that Mitchell was sensitive and continued to be a good supportive father to his three children. Dr William Vickery, a psychiatrist, testified that Mitchell suffered from chronic depression and alcohol and drug abuse. He stated that Mitchell had long-standing feelings of inadequacy, low self-esteem, despair, shame and humiliation. Vickery explained that individuals who have suffered a lot of verbal and physical abuse tend to be crippled from a psychological point of view and have trouble later in life becoming violent, abusive adults. On cross-examination, Vickery admitted that Mitchell had never been diagnosed as mentally ill and that his depression was not severe. Hmm. The prosecutor described evidence of Mitchell's background as shocking. He stated that he had no evidence to contradict it and it should be taken at face value, and that it painted a very ugly picture. He then posed the question, what does it mean? The prosecutor's answer was, there is nothing to bridge the background of what happened in that family to the murders that we have dealt with here, nothing to connect it. If, in fact, it were a mitigating factor that a person had a bad childhood, that would apply to virtually every violent felon currently incarcerated. 
If that were, therefore, a mitigating factor, then you will be emptying prisons because it would apply to virtually everybody. I find that quite cold, actually. Well, you know, there are degrees to these things, and this is, uh, well, this is a really, like, gray Well, that's right. In mitigating circumstances, everybody has a different story. Everybody's left a different trail in their life, you know? Also, a lot of people who've had absolutely horrendous things like this happen haven't ended up in jail. So to sort of just say that everyone in there has had a terrible upbringing, I don't know if that's particularly accurate either, statistically speaking. Well, that's right. If someone's had something awful like this happened to them in their childhood, they're more likely to be a victim than a perpetrator. It's mm-hmm. like mental illness. Mm. You know, the, schizophrenics aren't, aren't going out there killing people. They're more likely to be murdered themselves. He also described Mitchell's depression as somewhere between the mental illness suffered by 20 million people and that suffered by people in Boston when the Celtics lose the playoffs. Oh, that's wicked cold which the prosecutor submitted does not mitigate three murders and two attempted murders. The jury agreed with him, and on September 11, 1987, Mitchell was formally sentenced to die in the gas chamber at San Quentin. Mitchell was also found guilty of the South Carolina murders and received another death sentence. I want to kill him twice. Well, you know, they'll have to revive him after the first time and just do it again. There have been numerous appeals over the years, all have failed, Tara. Mitchell Carton Sims remains on death row. I, that, that, that's it started off traumatic and just got more so as it as it went on. Yeah, I know. <sighs> I don't think people like that should be executed, but that's just my opinion. But um, yeah, three murders is a lot, though. Yeah, yeah, I can see both sides. I don't, I don't have the answers. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Nothing's yeah. ever black or white. Well, you know, except like. White cats and black cats. Magpies. Magpies are, well, they're black and white. Yeah. Hmm. I think they might have yellow legs, though. Well, see, point not proven. (laughs) That's right. I like how deep we just got there. I know. Now, before we do Aussie as, um, let's get into some listener feedback. Yeah, let's do that. Alan Hopfensberger shared a post that he tagged me in and said, I've finally found the perfect thing to share. It said, I wonder if when you die, you get life stats like curse words, 500,000, shots of vodka, 70,569, lost socks, 9,678,592. Well, you know, if we're talking about me, the totals of curse words and lost socks need to be swapped over and there need to be a couple more zeros on the end of those shots for vodka thing. Yeah, let's just triple that. Yeah. <laughs> let's just triple everything. Tanya Todd shared some deadly facts about water. Fact, overconsumption can cause excessive sweating, urination and even death. Fact, 100% of all serial killers, rapists and drug dealers have admitted to drinking water. Fact, water is one of the primary ingredients in all herbicides and pesticides. Fact, water is a leading cause of drowning. Fact, 100% of all people exposed to water will die. And so this is why you don't drink any water ever? Yeah, there's water in beer. And yeah. I bathe in it occasionally. Yeah, very, very occasionally. I bathe in beer occasionally. <laughs> yeah, but you always put on your Cleopatra wig before you do so, don't I you? I do. Oh, you look so pretty. Jonathan Gulliver posted, Tara, this is basically what your mantra should be. And you'll never guess what the theme is here. Them, you can't just go around calling everyone a cunt. Me, that's where you're wrong, cunt chops. <laughs> Chalice Carly Buller said, Don't forget, folks, the apocalypse is coming this year. 
On June 6th, 2002, Arlene Wernus got her wish. She was put to death at 9.47pm that day. During her last interview, she was quoted saying, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie. Big mothership and all. I'll be back. You're an inhumane bunch of fucking living bastards and bitches and you're gonna get your asses nuked in the end and pretty soon it's coming. 2019, a rock's supposed to hit you anyhow. You're all gonna get nuked. I, I didn't realise she was so obsessed with the rock. Those are great last words, aren't they? Yeah, you know, like if you're gonna go out, flame out hard like yeah, I yeah. I'm all for it. Oh, well, I mean, you know, the flame out. I have a question for you, Tara. Oh, whatever could it be? What is Aussie as? Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity and extreme fishing with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? An extreme fishing story, mm-hmm. for sure. Today I'll be talking about Run, Daniel, Run! The video of a pair of barra fishermen being chased by a crocodile in the Northern Territory. Darwin's Dak Craig has been well-known in Australia for a few days now after the video of him fishing with his mate Daniel Luttig in NT went viral. In it, Dak is advising his mate Daniel on how to catch a barra, which then turns into him screaming for Daniel to run from a croc. Um, So this is just so Aussie as that I had to cover it. Let's play a clip of it now. Yes. Yes, Daniel. Quick. Quick, bro, the big fucker's on it. Oh, Daniel. Run, bro. Run back, bro. Run back, bro. Run back, bro. Run back. Oh, run, bro. Run, 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 run. Run, Daniel, run. Run. Run, Daniel. Run. Run, bro. Oh, no, he's got it. Pressure on. Keep the pressure. No. No. No, it's no. so big! It's no. so big, he's swallowing it! Oh, the whole thing! Oh, the whole thing's gone down his gob! Fuck! Oh, don't oh. Get back, Dak! Oh, my God! Oh. Daniel, that was a boost of a fish! Oh! Man, you know how far I ran back, I was back there! I oh, know! Oh, what a fucking dog! Oh! Oh, whoa, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'll post the video on our Facebook page. Um, it's, it's a huge barra and it's a huge croc. What makes this so Aussie as is that it's obvious that Dak is way more gutted by the crocodile eating Daniel's huge fish than he is scared for his own life. When asked why they were fishing in crocodile-infested waters in the first place, Dak said, Ah, mate. That's pretty well any body of water in the top end, mate. You know, there could be a crocodile almost everywhere. From the city to out bush, doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter if you're in a boat or on the bank. They are there. Asked what happened after the video stopped, he said, Oh, once the croc actually had the fish, it was uh, pretty content to just sit there and wallow. Wasn't too active after that. I mean, you know, we we heard on the side of caution and there was a tree that we sort of held up in for a little while just to make sure all the action was definitely over. When asked to clarify if the run, run, run was about advising Daniel about how to land the fish or to save him from the crocodile, Dak said, ah, mate, a bit of both. He was already pretty quick to move away, so it was in a large part for the fish. We really wanted to size up that capture without the crocodile involved. But unfortunately, we're in their domain, mate, and it wanted it more than we did, 
So it was welcome to have it. <laughs> I'm just really disappointed that Dak didn't nickname his mate Daniel something like Dano or Dunny. Run, Dunny, run! Wouldn't that be cooler? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dunny, come on. Yeah, Dunny, the wily tugboat captain. Yeah. <laughs> who nearly caught a really big barabundi. I know, but then it got eaten by a croc. I know, there's oh, a it headline. It was huge! Huge! So there you go, there you have it. That was awesome. It was pretty fun. Um, the video is really cool. It starts out a bit slow, but um, but boy, does it uh, it takes up pace. I got to say. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. If you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. You know, who bought the drinks this week, Tara. Who? Margaret Salazar. Oh, we love you, Margaret. Yeah, thanks for doing that, and 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 thank you for your ongoing support too. She writes bones for pops. And brews for you. Oh, she's so nice to us. She buys us a lot of drinks and bones. Except I forget and I eat the bone and I give the dog the beer and I've well, got to really get it clear in my mind. So going to drink doing. that bone later. Mmm, delicious. Um, we'd also like to thank our Facebook group moderating team and thanks so much, Senga, for all the hard work you did as an admin. And I hope things go well for you. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Um, you can join our Facebook group or follow our Facebook page. Uh, we're on Twitter at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram at Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and our fabulous merchandise. Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, Tara, how about Dexter in the car the other day? Oh, that was so cute. (laughs) He's been reading books now, like novels. Yeah, like books without pictures. Books without pictures. Which became a point of contention. Um, He was actually asking us if we thought that novels don't have pictures in them because the authors were just lazy. And we were like, oh, yeah, Leo Tolstoy, lazy bastard, drawing me, not a picture in it. Lying in a hammock, not drawing pictures for his novels. I know, all that time he should have spent drawing, just lying around. You know. They had they had the intercom on in the room and they kept lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since nineteen ninety-seven. All at William Gibson, he's lazy Bukowski. Uh, oh, what's, what's, this bloke, what's this bloke look like you're writing about? Oh, I've got to use my imagination like oh, a chump. So lazy. So lazy. I mean, come on, authors. Come on, Hilda. You're an author. I don't, I don't recall seeing any pictures in That's your right. books. That's right. Well, she says she's... Actually, there were some tiny pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Pull your finger out, authors. Get drawing. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, come on. Being published, not enough to, to impress a 10-year-old boy. No. <laughs> there won't be any gold. Not at the end of this shit, Bo. Oh, no. When you mine for gold, sometimes you just struck a great big vein of poo. Yeah. And you go, well, that's it then. I've got poo. Yeah. That's my life now. Uh-huh. I, I have live a whole poo. cauldron of it, and I followed the leprechaun for no reason. That's right. Because I already had cauldrons of shit. I didn't need more. Well, little Irish bastard. Yeah. <laughs> How dare he? I mean, what does he even want? I know he likes shoes. Shining the, the shoes, buckly shoes. Yeah, they, they normally got a buckle on them, don't yeah. they? Yeah, green beer. Oh, yeah. Which leads to green poos. Was the poo in the cauldron, was it uh, 
Was it green? Absolutely. Well, what, it was what, Irish poo. Why is it a cauldron anyway? It always looks like a cauldron, don't well, you Well, they call it a pot. A yeah. large pot. That's, yeah, it is a cauldron, isn't it? It's a cauldron. No. Witchcraft. Witchcraft. Witchcraft and leprechauns. <laughs> Apparently they are linked. Witchcraft and leprechauns. That's the name of your fourth album. It is. Yeah. What are some of the song titles? Cauldron of Shit being one, I'm sure. Cauldron of Shit. <laughs> I've just struck a vein. Oh, no, it's poo. <laughs> uh, I see that this is a, a thematic album. Uh, like all the others. A feces-themed album. Feces like your album. third, second and first albums. Well, yeah, you know, when you're on a good thing. <laughs> Shit in uh, it. I'll stink the charts up <laughs> with my poom-related music. Oh, Poo-related music. Poom. Poom. You'll set the charts alight. I'll set the charts alight with my poom-related music. Oh, that was hauntingly beautiful. Oh, great. Laszlo's decided to take a big dump. Well, you know, he oh. heard us talking about poo and he thought, I could join in this conversation with my ass. Mo uh, changed his litter the other day and he didn't put the lid on. I said, don't forget his privacy hood. <laughs> oh, yes, he won't ever go number twos without a privacy hood. Uh, he doesn't care, but I figure it keeps us thinking and I don't want to watch him taking a crap. You don't? No. Why'd you get a cat then? Oh, well, yeah, this is the question. <laughs> I don't have the answer. Hello, I'm Barney Black. <laughs> <laughs> I like wearing jorts. Ah, Jortal Combat. Jortal Combat. Yes. Play it to the death. I prefer, like, dresses to shorts. Shorts, they don't really work on everyone. Well, no. That's funny you should say that because I look great in jorts and I look great in a dress. Oh, yeah, you really know how to fill out a pair of jorts. I know. I've just got that body shape that just suits pretty much all fashions. Oh, I know. You could just put you in in a potato sack and you'd look like Marilyn Monroe. Well, that's right. They're called moobs, Barney. (laughs) <laughs> and they, they, they fill out any top. They really do, don't they? <laughs> oh, that's a smashing blouse you've got on, Barney. Oh, my God, it accepts you, accentuates your moves. Exanguinates. <laughs> what a great shape they are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have strangers coming up in, in, in the street and saying that to me. Yeah. Uh. My, what a phenomenal man rack you have there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, actually, you get it more than I do. Yeah. Don't undress me with your eyes. No, I was dressing you with my eyes. I was oh, putting right. layers on. Layers oh. and a very long Doctor Who scarf. Oh, that's right. The sex scarf. Yeah, the, the double-ended sex scarf that my boyfriend's knitting for us. That was the name of my fourth album, Double-Ended Sex Scarf. <laughs> it was a double album, wasn't it? It was a double album. <laughs> well, rightly so, oh. I say. It'd be false advertising to call just like a single album double... Double-ended sex scarf? Well, you know, it was actually a triple album. There's irony there. (laughs) What, that it was released at all was ironic? Don't you think? Well, yeah. Yeah, Uh-huh. When I don't know, I just get married again. Maybe that's what I should do. I feel like I should try and be more like Jill Coit. Well, yeah, and I should change my name to William Coit. Yeah, you definitely should. (laughs) Well, people already assume that. Well, they do, don't well, they? That's because I changed your nappy in public. It's because Let's I... not mention the breastfeeding. Uh-huh. When I told my doctor my age the other day, she went, oh, you don't look that old. She was amazed. Did she think you looked 65? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I told you not to dress like Klinger when you went to your appointment. People assume that's an older man's game. 
I thought you told me to dress like uh, Clooney. You know how many times we've gotten that mixed up? I know. Mm-hmm. And yet here we are. Yeah. Me dressed like Klinger again. Yeah. I'm dressed like Klinger too. Really? On the inside. I'm thinking about eating a Jeep later. <laughs> That'll get you out of the army. Remember when he did that? Oh, yeah. That was awesome. Yeah, I've realised the parts of my brain that I've actually gotten rid of from, well, probably drinking, um, are the bits that remember the plot to MASH episodes. So now MASH is back on all the time and I'm, it's like I'm seeing them for the first time. Oh, really? Yeah. Joy. I, well, no, I don't know. It's kind of quite a sign of brain damage, I feel. All right, Laszlo. Okay, so do I do it first? Or yeah, do you- um, yeah, you go first. All right. Once upon a time, there was a boy named Cambo, and he was our friend, and we loved him. Our one true love. Yeah. Beer. Oh, looking forward to that. Beer with Cambo. Beer with yeah, Cambo yeah. is fun. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. We're going to see his purple fisherman's pants again. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet they'll be scrunched up on the floor of my hotel room. <laughs> oh, if things go according to plan. Uh, maybe I'll have my own purple fisherman's pants one day. Oh, well, there'll be a knock at the door and, like, you know, you'll have to... Cambo will answer it wearing nothing but a purple fisherman's top and then you'll come out of the room and you'll be wearing the purple fisherman's pants. Ah, uh, one can but dream. Yeah, a uh-huh. boy can but dream. <laughs> when I am of age, I shall wear my own purple fisherman's <laughs> pants. Yeah, they don't make purple fisher hipster boy pants yet, do they? No, they don't. They should. They should. There's an idea. Yeah, well, marketing geniuses, get mm. on it. And yet here we are. Her catchy name was Jill Lanita Billiot. Enan, Moore, Coit, Brody, DeRosa, Metzger, DeRosa, Steely, Boggs, Carol, Bacchus. You do Steely, Boggs, don't you? <laughs> oh, my Boggs are so Steely. <laughs> they look you right in the eye. Oh, they do, and I say, you smell me. <laughs> Try and flash me now. I'm far too large. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that's terrifying. Oh, I had to flash you twice. Ah, no. And you get the poo stick out. There's too much poo talk already and we haven't even started. Three. Three. That's right. I didn't say free. It all sounds the same to me, man. My teacher used to hit me with a stick when I said free instead of three. Oh. Uh, So you had to say, like, when you were singing along uh, to George Michael, you had to go, freedom! Yeah, freedom! No, that's not with a TH. Oh. Yeah, I go one, two, four, and she goes. I used to have a ballet teacher that hit me with a stick, right? Um, Quite regularly. She, I mean, she hit us all, but I was particularly bad at ballet, so I got hit a lot. And I remember once being like, "Can you just stop hitting me?" I was probably about nine, Um, and then like I remember I got in trouble because I wouldn't let the ballet teacher hit me. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) Tara, you need to let strangers hit you more. It's just how, how I'm raising you, Tara. Well, that's how <laughs> things were done in the olden days. Yeah, back in the 20s. Yeah. So where'd she hit you on the hand? Uh, no, it was usually on my um, my ankles, legs and feet because yeah. um, I was born pigeon-toed and, and yet I was made to do ballet, so I didn't have really good turnout. You were born with pigeon toes? Yep. Wow. Feathery bastards <laughs> that they were. <laughs> Rats of the air. I have their feet. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I attracted the stick a lot. I murdered Mm. her and rammed it up her ass. No one ever caught me. And then you rode your dinosaur home. Yeah. Yeah, I would. Sit on it, Fonzie. Uh, Fonzie was on the back. 
Well, would you put him in charge of it? No way. No, he was can't drunk have him all the, the time. Front. He was drunk all the time. Yeah, on drunk toilet on, wine. Drunk on toilet wine and power. Yeah. Because he could just snap his fingers and the chicks would come over. Yeah, into the toilet cubicle to pour him some more wine. That's right. He banged the jukebox and had to play some shitty 50s song. Yeah, that's how he lived. Mm, that's right. So jelly of him. <laughs> all right, let's, let's do stuff. Sounded a lot like you said handmade Barney vadges, and I was like, "Oh, nobody needs to see that." What is he making them uh, out of? I don't give those out. No, you keep them in a shoebox, and they're made of chicken. I ah. have a I have a room especially for them. <laughs> the, ba- the Barney vag room. The Barney handmade vag room. Uh, there's, there's shelves all around, the, and they're all but they're they're ceramic, of course. Yeah, you you um. You, you try to imagine what a celebrity's vag would look like and then you make a ceramic chicken version of it. Well, and, and by the way, this is not vulgar. They're not for use. No, they're artistic. They're artistic. You look at them. You appreciate them. Yeah, they're beautiful. They are. Yeah. Thank Haunt, you. Hauntingly so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we just got you a new skill, Barney. <laughs> hey, you want to see my handmade Barney vagus? <laughs> Hey, baby. I've got a whole room of them. Want to come see my handmade Barney badges? Oh, I don't think Sexy Barney would make them. Oh, maybe he does. Well, if he made them, he'd use them. Let me try that. Hey, baby, you want to see my room full of handmade Barney badges? Yeah, no, that's, no. A, that's, a, that's a no from me. No, I think it's rough Barney makes them. Yeah, yeah baby. <laughs> you want to see my room? It's full of handmade Barney badges. That's like Wolf Creek Barney. <laughs> Wolf Creek Barney. Yeah, he makes ceramic Barney badges. <laughs> they all look a bit like you, which is funny. Oh, they all have my flight. They all have my likeness. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they're your own children. I hide, I hide my face in them. <laughs> Before, during, and after. Oh, that's right. Enjoy. Strange. My portfolio is full of photos like that. And yet, Vogue still said no. Yes, but Vanity Fair said yes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to your, your, your Vanity Fair yeah. spread. You want to see my spread? When's that coming out? Oh, and, and there's lots of photos of my ceramic features. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think it's in the May issue to, um, to coincide with the Australian Podcast Awards. <laughs> That's right. Funny. Podcaster, ceramic vag maker. <laughs> Making podcast and ceramic vag history. Oh, yeah. I feel like most podcasters make ceramic badges as a hobby. Well, I started it, though. Yeah, you did. It's true. And I will end it. <laughs> I, I believe so. Also, I mean, she is a piece of work, so it's possible that she, she like, crucified his cat or something and put it up on a kite and flew it over his house. Jill was keen to buy a picturesque. Jill was keen to buy the picturesque. Why am I talking like this? I like it. Yeah? Oh, well then, I'll do it more. What are you, like under a bridge? Yes. Do I have to... Answer an- some riddles, yeah. fucko. <laughs> but self-mutilation was was awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. Highly recommend it. Well, we've all got pierced thingies. <laughs> Depends what you mean by Well, thingies. ears or nipples or knobs. We've all got pierced knobs around here. Well, that's right. <laughs> Damn straight. Hello, Barney. Can I come in? Well, do you have a pierced knob? <laughs> oh, well, uh, no knob piercing, no entry, I'm afraid. Well, it's a strict, strict rule. Yeah, you have to walk through a metal detector, and if you don't set it off, you can't come in. <laughs> Would you like to see my ceramic vatches? <laughs> or show me your pierced knob. Oh, Lord. You know when people say we're puerile in mean reviews? 
Have you ever considered that they might be right? That's not a lap to sit on, Tara. <laughs> I mean, Leslie. Yeah, I'm constantly sitting on gentlemen's laps, calling them daddy and asking them to buy me a pony. But here we are with no pony. Yeah, I didn't say they liked it. I didn't say they wanted me to keep doing it. I believe they usually just went, help. Look at this handsome boy. <sighs> you know he's going to attack. No, he's just looking at me saying, I didn't say stop. <laughs> mm, it's about Gary Gilmore, who himself was a multiple murderer. Yeah, I think that... You might have swallowed oh. that a little bit. Achoo! Oh. Oh. oh, the cat attacked you and you nearly you nearly sneezed your headphones off. Bless you. Oh. Yeah, that's about Gary Gilmore, who he's... In... <laughs> I'm not Mr. Glow. Well, I'm not Mr. Gilmore. Oh, no. But have you seen that television series about my girls? <laughs> oh. oh, yeah, no, they weren't his girls No Isn't he in Pink Floyd too? Yeah, 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 he's definitely in Pink Floyd He plays the Floyd, Pinkly Oh, so he didn't have, like, the Barney attack that, that your girlfriend told me you had in the shops <laughs> Barney attack? Didn't you rah, rah, rah. Didn't oh. you go off at her in the supermarket once? Yeah, I did. Yeah, what 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 brought it on? Was she like, oh, what kind of toilet paper should we get? Just get anything. I want to go home and shit. <laughs> oh no, that no, no not that, a, that, too much poo. Let's unpoo yeah, this. Yeah, right. Remove well, you, the feces. You started it with toilet paper. Yeah, I know. It was an accident, though. It was accidental to- TPing. I wanted you to tell the real story. I don't but, remember the real story. Oh, fine. I know we had a fight at an IKEA once, but doesn't everybody? Oh, everyone does. Oh, God, that place. That place is just. Fraught with danger. Highness. Hyenas, even. It's hyenas. It's hi- there are hyenas there uh, laughing at you as yeah, you get my break up with your partner. Dogs laughing at my dick. <laughs> I wouldn't be the first time. Damn them. Go back to Africa. No, that came out wrong. Oh, my. <laughs> but the oh, hyenas. That's, dig they, up, stupid. That's where they like to live. No, they like to live in Ikea. Threatening to shoot Psycam unless Spiro cooperated. Spiroff. Yeah, yeah. But I think you called him Spycam. <laughs> <laughs> Nanny can. I thought you called him Spyro, like that dragon. Oh, yeah. I don't know what that is. That's a video game thing. God, keep up. No, I will not. It's no Jordal Combat. <laughs> well, no, it's my favourite game of all time. Mitchell's sister, Merlin, testified to repeated incidents of fi- fi- physical. <laughs> Let's get physical. And if it's anything to do with this context, I do not want to get in any way physical ever again. I know what Olivia Newton-John said about this song, Physical. She said, oh, yeah, it's about about banging, but we can't have a film clip with banging in it, so I thought, well, we'll just have it at the gym. (laughs) I'm just trying to get buff, but it's actually about banging. Oh, I'm surprised she knew that. Yeah. Let's get into animals. Pretty sure she says that at one point. I think she says, let's get animal. She does. Let's get animal, animal. I want to get animal. Let's get into animals. Oh, yeah. Let me hear your body talk. Come here, Laszlo. Let me <laughs> No, don't. Are you hitting on my cat? No. Well, yeah, a little bit. Uh, I see you have murder bear there. Try not to fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> get in my canyon. <laughs> you, need a, you need a bucket of red dirt? <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I always do. Uh, gritty. I? I like it gritty. 